I feel privileged to be here sharing God's word with you this afternoon. Thanks to Father Kevin, Mother Karen, the invitation to speak on Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1 to 4 that was read to us. I also want to thank you for being a loving and caring congregation to my family. Over on your right-hand side is my wife, Jana, and our daughter, Sydney Caprice, and her husband, Ben. And there are five grandchildren there, two with us tonight. Actually, on the front cover, our granddaughter, Ava, has done a picture of God's world and the nations of the world. So the timing is impeccable, as well as... Uh, Wearing this shirt, I just realized my wife picked out this shirt that it has significance. Everybody's wearing purple, so that's, that's, that's good. I, I don't come from around here, I come from Australia, if you have not guessed. And I remember in elementary school or primary school learning poetry. Poetry is very powerful. And I remember a poem by Dorothea McKellar, 1908. I love a sunburned country, a land of sweeping plains, of rugged mountain ranges, of droughts and flooding rains. I love her far horizons. I love her jewel sea, her beauty and her terror, the wide brown land for me. And you're just sitting there. You're not stirred deeply within your heart and emotions hearing that song from primary school. That's a 65-year-old memory, I just want to just let you know. <laughs> and God helped me get through it. But I, I remember my country. Poetry has an effect that stirs our emotions. And the reading of Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1 to 4, is a Hebraic poem. It's a Hebrew poem. So I'm going to take... You and I got to go on a little journey just for a little while, just verse by verse, and let me unpack it a little bit. And we're going to start with Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 1. So you've got it before you. Just follow me, take out a pen, and I'm, I'm going to just go verse by verse and tell you what's happening here, as, as best I know. Uh, I, I have printed out big big letters so I, I don't have to wear my glasses. This is about a 36 font, so. <laughs> Verse 1, this is what Isaiah, son, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So, who's Amos? Well, we don't know. He's the father of Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet in Judah. So let me give you a little bit of history, just in a couple of minutes. And I'm going to use my hands because I don't have a whiteboard. If I go to the whiteboard, I'm lost in time. So, so Israel and Judah, the north and south kingdom, are on a land bridge. And you've got this massive Assyrian nation pushing down. And we're talking 8th century BC. So Isaiah is 740 BC to 685 BC. It's a 55-year it's a prophecy to the kingdom of Judah and over four kings. So you've got Assyria pushing down to Egypt, wanting to attack Egypt. But in between, 
You've got Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom. And Assyria gets rid of Israel, the northern kingdom, 722, and starts pressing in on Judah, pushing their way to Egypt. So there's the history. That's important because Isaiah, moved by the Holy Spirit, moved by God, is speaking to Judah, specifically the kings who are disobedient to the covenant, and especially to the people who are hypocrites in their religious attitude to God. And that comes out in chapter 1. But in chapter 1, there are little hints of hope. There's going to come a Messiah who's going to bring righteousness, justice and peace in amongst conviction of their sin and disobedience, breaking the covenant, being hypocrites, the people and the kings. There's a hope of a better future. And the hope is unpacked in the poem, Isaiah 2, 1 to 4. So that's first one. A little bit of history. Verse 2, in the last days. Well, in the Old Testament, they thought the last days would come with the first coming of the Messiah. But then there was a delay. So in the New Testament, the concept of the last days isn't the consummation of judgment and fire and brimstone that falls from heaven. It's the delay between the first coming of the Messiah and the second coming. It's the unfolding of his kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of the Messiah. That's what it means by the last days. And then using poetic metaphor, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established. As the highest of the mountains, it will be exalted above the hills. So let's just grab this metaphor because this is very important. It occurs four times. The mountain of the Lord is the Lord's temple. And then in verse 3, it is again talking about the same metaphor. The mountain of the Lord is the temple of the God of Jacob. So the metaphor is mountain. Mountain is massive. It's big. It's huge. It's dominant. It dominates the landscape. It's immovable. It's stable. It will be there forever and ever. There's an eternal quality about mountains. And this equivalent of the mountain of God is equal to the temple of the Lord. It's talking about the presence of God. In the Old Testament, this is a Hebraic poem. The concept of the temple is where God lives. The temple is the presence of God. So right from the beginning in the fall in Genesis 3, there's been redemption, a redeemer promise that will bring people back to the presence of God and experience the blessing of God. So when you talk about the mountain, it's a metaphor. When you talk about the temple, it's massive, it's big, it's dominant, it's huge, it's not going anywhere. And it's the presence of the Lord with his people. And a New Testament concept, a New Testament perspective, it's us. It's the church. Down through the centuries, down through the eras, the temple, the mountain, the immovable, God will do it. Pow! Is the church. Now, this is what I mean by poetry. Let me just show you once, and it happens throughout the whole of the poem. And that is... This is Hebrew poetry. 
It's called, in this case, synonymous parallelism. So using my hands again, <laughs> if something is said, A, A for apple, then something is said again, A subscript, which is exactly the same, but is said from a different angle, a different perspective. So I'm going to take off my glasses. You know, I'm getting serious now. I just don't want to miss anything. The mount on the Lord's temple will be established. That's fact one. The highest of the mountains, it will be exalted above the mountains. So when you're talking about the church, the Lord's temple, the mountain being established, then it will be exalted. Established and exalted is one and the same thing. I'll do it again. It goes down the bottom of verse 2. All nations will stream into the church, into the mountain, into the temple. Many peoples will come. So here it is, the parallelism again. All nations will stream into the church, into the mountain, into the temple, into the presence of God. Then the same thing is said again, parallel, many peoples will come. All nations, many peoples. They'll stream, they will come. You get that? <laughs> now that, that is all the way through it. And it's powerful to a Hebrew mind. It's big. The church is big. Say in Papua New Guinea. Let me give you some illustrations. Papua New Guinea is the island just north of Australia. On the left-hand side is Indonesia Guinea. On the right-hand side is Papua New Guinea. When I first went there, it was just barely 3 million people and 850 languages amongst 3.5 million people. So in 1970, amongst the charismatic renewal, Australian missionary came into Port Moresby and experienced a revival. Just the Holy Spirit moved in signs and wonders and healings and demon deliverance. And in a very short matter of time, tens of thousands of Melanesians came to Christ. And they established, in a very, very short time, 20 Bible schools, started pumping out missionaries, cross-cultural workers, all across Oceania, Inda, India, Philippines, and you've never heard of the denomination. It's my denomination. It's so small in Australia, you blink and you miss the churches. But in Oceania, there are tens of thousands of Polynesians and Melanesians that are worshipping Jesus coming out of this move of the Holy Spirit in 1970. It's a mountain. It's a temple of the Lord. And we don't know anything about it. One of the 40,000 Protestant denominations we don't know much about. Zion, little town up in Illinois. I'm pointing, I believe this is north. Zion. Ever been through Zion? In the early 20th century, they sent out from a church in Zion some missionaries into South Africa. And they started preaching... Jesus, Saviour, King, spiritual gifts, power manifestations, healing, prophecy, started preaching a little Pentecostal. And they, the missionaries, the Western missionaries from Zion, Illinois, got sick and returned home to Illinois. Then about 1950s, the church in South Africa began to burgeon and grow into millions. 
of adherents, millions of worshippers, a mountain that couldn't be stopped. And they connected with a little church in Zion, less than 100 people, and said, this is the fruit of your labor nearly 100 years ago. Right now, African instituted churches, of which the Zion Church Movement in South Africa is one, is something like 500 million followers of Jesus. The Zionist movement is over 12 million in 10 countries. It's a big church. It's a big mountain. You know, it's like the Pentecostals. I, I'm from that persuasion. I didn't know whether you knew that, Father. <laughs> it's too late now. I'm hanging here, man. Preach the word. 1906, Azusa Street Revival. Let's start there. 1910, there were 10,000 Pentecostals. Now there are 640 million. It's a mountain of God. God's doing some amazing things. The little I know about church history, never is the mountain as big as it is right now, ever, in human history. If you look at church eras through human history, it's a thin red line. Thin, because sometimes you don't think it's going to make it. The church is not going to make it. They're going to get wiped out. And red, because of martyrdom. Lots of people gave up their lives. Let's move on. Let's move on to verse 3, which is Abrahamic blessing, Genesis 12. And the nations are going to be blessed through Abraham. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Let's come to the temple of Jacob. I, I ask the question, uh, thank you for allowing me to just reflect on this scripture this week. I, I ask the question, why not Abraham? Why not Isaac? Why is it the temple of Jacob? And the thought comes, he's very human. <laughs> he's a very human rogue, lovable, but he's a rogue. And God says, that's my man. That's my person, and uh, it's him and me, and he associates with humanity. I, th I think that's why he says Jacob. But let's go on. In verse 3, he will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Here, see the parallelism again? He will teach us his ways. What does that mean? Well, we're going to walk in his paths, teaching the way, walking in the path. The law, going from Zion, the presence of God, not necessarily the literal mountain in Jerusalem. The word of the Lord, the law, the word of the Lord, from Jerusalem, from Zion. See the connection. Well, again in human history, I've had a little bit to do with Wycliffe Bible translators. I'm, I'm talking about God the teacher. So you come into the temple, all the nations coming into the presence of God, what's going to happen? What's God going to do? All over the world, God's teaching. God's giving wisdom in guidance. And it's through his word, through the law from Zion, through the word of God from Jerusalem. Never before in human history has so much, been, so much energy and effort and human endeavor put towards translating the scriptures. Wycliffe Bible translators. There's over 7,000 languages in the world. Barely 1,200 just 1,200 of nearly over 7,000 have been translated both Old and New Testament. Right now, there's 2,500 languages in process of being 
you translated the Bible into those languages. But through our small classes, Wheaton, grad school, I've had the privilege of having quite a number of Wycliffe Bible translators come through. And just, just letting you know, you know, 30 plus years, her and her family in a little island in the middle of the Indian Ocean, translating for an indigenous people, translating faithfully committed, understanding her culture, the Bible culture, and the culture of the people, translating the word of God. And then I remember one of the lovable rogues in my class was sent by Wycliffe Bible translators to the end of the earth, the Ethiopian desert, living in a steel container to translate the word of God into the language of the indigenous people. I thought it was the justice of God, actually, because he caused me some heartaches in class. So I thought, <laughs> God's on my side. And then in Papua New Guinea, just this week, I got a newsletter from Ben Pierce. Actually, he's here in Wheaton right now, working on Bible translation. He and his whole family, they weren't married when he was in my class. Now they've got four beautiful children, some are going to college. He spent 20 years, I know, at least 20 years in this back of the beyond on the central highlands with a small indigenous people translating the book of Jonah, translating Ruth, translating the scriptures that they may hear the word of the Lord so that God would teach them. There are so many unsung heroes and heroines in the mountain, in the temple of the Lord, allowing God to teach, allowing people to follow his paths. Let, let's move on to the last verse. He will judge between the nations. He will settle disputes with many people. Nations, many people, judge, settle disputes. So the judge is not, you're going to get it, because of your sin, it's to do with God's wisdom. Now, God is the teacher. He will teach us his ways and show us and guide us as we're in his presence, the temple, the mountain of the Lord. But also here, this is the promise. This, amongst the depravity of Judah, Assyria pushing down, people being rebellious, kings doing what they want to do, breaking the covenant. There's a hope, there's a hope. One day, one day. We're in the day. We're in the last days. And it's intensifying. I, I have not ever been really strong on prophecy. I grew up in a church, very fundamental church, where they had banners about latter-day teaching. Mao Zedong was the Antichrist at one time. I remember hearing that from the pulpit. But I don't tend to move in that direction. Book of Revelation is a mystery to me. But I tell you, never before in human history is the messianic kingdom of Jesus such a powerful mountain and God is teaching his people through his word never before in human history. Is it so immense and powerful? Is it coming to the last of the last days? So here we have God the judge. Let me give you a couple illustrations as we end this evening. Again, there are these synonymous parallelisms all the way through, but let me end with a couple of illustrations. Uh, in verse 4, he will judge the nations, settle disputes for many peoples. My wife, Joanna, and I have been privileged to go to different parts of the world and be with leaders. We were in Vietnam not too long ago, 
And of course, the Vietnam War, the sadness of that, communism. And we met a, a pastor and his wife. Well, they're both pastors, a couple. As young people, they had been sent by the Vietnamese government to Russia to be indoctrinated with communism. They were up-and-coming leaders in the community. They were a young married couple. So the Vietnamese sent them to Russia from a Buddhist background to atheist slash Russian Orthodox. In Russia, this couple were working in a market, selling a few things as well as doing school, and some Northern American missionaries, cross-cultural workers, came along to buy some of their goods and started talking. The conversation extended, the relationship built, and they found themselves giving Christ as saviour, giving their life to Christ as saviour in Russia, in St. Petersburg. They came back to Vietnam, Ho Chi Minh City, and they established a church, an underground church. It's underground as long as if the neighbourhood's happy, everybody's happy. The police are happy. They don't, let, they don't worry about it. So Jane and I went and had a meal with them up on the second floor, church downstairs, and they told us the story. Talk about God settling disputes. You know, the Vietnam War and the sadness and the tragedy of how many American soldiers, New Zealand, Australian, allied forces lost their lives. Yet, God brings peace in amongst these historic unsettling times. He brings people into his mountain from a Buddhist background. And then the last section of verse 4. Again, Synonymous parallelism, beating the swords into plowshares, spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. So you have this imagery metaphor of power and armies and military might. You have swords, you have spears, power, secular power. But God, through his Holy Spirit, in the messianic kingdom in the last days, turns these swords and spears into agricultural instruments. This is the God of peace, the God who teaches through his word, the God who settles disputes through his presence, and the God of peace that instead of warfare is love, and kindness. Let me end with an illustration. We're in Sri Lanka a couple of times. So Sri Lanka is the island south of India. You know, 30 plus million, 70% of Buddhists, Singhalese, maybe 10% Hindu, 15 Muslim, the rest Christian. So Christians are a minority. Uh, Buddhists are ruthless. Sri Lanka, I'm, I'm ashamed to say I knew nothing about Sri Lanka. I didn't know that they went through a 30-year civil war that ended maybe 10 years ago, where they lost something like, this is conservative, 500,000 people in a civil war between the Buddhists and the Tamil Tigers. In the tsunami that came out of Indonesia, in one day they lost 35 million Oh, excuse me, that's too long, that's too much. 35,000 people. I was looking at Jane and she shouted, no, no. 
35,000, but in one day. So we go into Colombo, the capital of Sri Lanka, and we're working with, coming alongside Pastor Ernest Somanathan. He's from a Tamil Indian background. And he tells a story that he's in a Buddhist, and they, uh, they can be aggressive. You think Buddhism is a peaceful religion? Mm, not in Sri Lanka. So he's in a Buddhist community, and they are anti-Christian. And he wants to establish a little church. And, and they're all on the council, all on the city council, and they say, no, no way. We're not, you're not getting anywhere here. We don't want Christians. We hate Christians. So he gets together with a small, small group of believers in his house and begins to pray. God gives them the idea of cleaning gutters, cleaning trash out of the gutters in the street. So over in those countries, not, you know, not many people pick up rubbish. So when the rain comes, all the rubbish gets into the gutters and there's an overflow of water and causes havoc and the water goes into the houses. So there was a series of Saturday mornings where Pastor Somanathan and his adherents, his members of the church, dressed up in all their old clothes with you know, mattocks and all sorts of equipment to clean the gutters. And the heads of the Buddhist community, after a number of weeks of doing this, came to Pastor Samanath and said, yeah, we would never do this. Buddhists would never do this. You know, Tamil, Tamil Hindu would never do this. Christians, why are you doing this? And because of that, they opened up their heart to the Christians and the council changed their mind and allowed the Christian community to build a church right in the middle of the Buddhist neighbourhood. We're talking swords turning to pruning hooks, spears turning to plowshares. One more. This is my last illustration. Uh, we were travelling around uh, Sri Lanka on the east coast, came into uh, a big church. Jaina actually preached. It was 600 plus. A lot of beautiful children, choirs, and they had done a lot of good work during the Civil War, uh, saving people that were about to be executed. And uh, we had lunch with the pastor and his wife and Pastor Samanathan took us to this church in the east because he had family, family members there. And we had a lovely Sunday lunch, lovely presence of God, beautiful worship, at least 600, maybe more. 2019, Easter 2019, Islamic terrorists came into Sri Lanka and bombed six church sites both West Coast and East Coast, Protestant and Catholic. One of the bombings of the Islamic terrorists was in this church at Bakala. So the church is situated off the road and there's a passageway, maybe 15 foot wide, maybe 20, and all the motorbikes are on one side. And the Islamic terrorist with the bombs on his backpack came up the, up the alleyway and the deacon said, no, you need to put your bag down. You can't come in with your bag. And he turned around and started walking back, the terrorist, to the street. Changed his mind, came back. And as the Sunday school class came out, right on the spot at the beginning of the church, opening up into the big auditorium, and he blew himself up and 17 children. 34 people died altogether that day, including family from Pastor Samanathan. 
He was very, very close to the church and to the pastor. Coming back into his Colombo suburb, there's a mosque and a man and a Muslim congregation. As this Christian, little Christian community gathered together, they felt they needed to extend the right hand of fellowship. And they walked down to the mosque. And Pastor Samanathan came up to the Amman, who he knew, just a couple of days after the terrorists had done their evil tragedy and extended the right hand of fellowship from a Christian believer in Jesus to the leader of the Islamic mosque. You've never heard of Pastor Somanathan. You've never heard of Sri Lanka, maybe, or Colombo, or the Christians and what they're doing there. But God and his presence is bringing this scripture to pass in places all over the world where his mountain is, his presence, his temple is. And we know nothing about it. And that's okay. God is in control. God is in charge. He's the one that is expanding and reaching out and touching people. He's the one that's bringing this to pass in the last days. Let me end with a scripture. Let me give you two scriptures. One from Matthew. You read Matthew this morning from the gospel in verse 14. It says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And lastly, Revelation 5, 8 to 10, the four living creatures, the 24 elders falling down, worshipping before the Lamb, and they sang a new song before the Lamb saying, you are worthy to take the scroll to open its seal because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they, that's you and I and all the other tribes, tongues, languages all over the world, past, future and present, will reign on the earth. May God bless his word and allow us to have eyes and ears to see and hear what he is doing in this world of ours through his presence and through his blessed Holy Spirit. Amen.